Hi everyone, welcome to Chi Alpha After Hours, where we take a closer look at what it means to follow Jesus on the university campus. This is our first episode of spring term, and it's great to be back. My name is Cassie, and I'm here with Nathan and Christian. Today, our format is going to be a little different. Each of us will be sharing about two books that have challenged us personally to grow in our faith. There are a lot of great ones out there, so our hope is that these recommendations will be helpful for you as well. I know both of these guys love to think about different aspects of following Jesus, so I'm excited to add to my list today too. As we start, let's just talk more generally for a minute about why we think reading these kinds of books can be helpful. Uh, one of our Chi Alpha values is being committed to learning. And uh, we all came from this Chi Alpha in Bellingham uh, where they had a really strong student and staff culture of leaders are readers. Um, so what does that phrase mean that leaders are readers? Why is this important? Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons we say uh, leaders are readers or why just reading in general is important is one, it offers us like actually a perspective that isn't our own. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it does, especially if we do a lot of varied reading. Um, I've found also that reading people help me discover a lot of things about myself and, and find people that I can identify with and think about. So like, um, in the, um, in a, a season of intense reading that I did, I found authors. I was like, oh, well, this guy makes a lot of sense to me. And then I started reading more books by that person and it helped me understand things in a way that made more sense and made, uh, God make more sense to me. Um, but it also like in reading someone who doesn't think like you, you understand other people better because, um, other people think like that person. Um, and so that's a, that's a big reason. Also, I would say practically reading is just a good habit to have, um, because it nurtures, I think it's actually a very natural way for our brains to learn. Um, we've been doing it for thousands of years. Um, and, uh, it can be, if it's a, if it's a part of your life, I don't know if I would call it a discipline of your life, even though that might be appropriate, but if it's a part of your life, it can be actually a really restful part of, um, your growth and your learning. Um, I know that I try to read books that are restful, but also nurturing to my life. And it helps me like think slower and in, in a more careful way in a more thoughtful way that isn't demanding. So I know that when I was in university and reading a lot of philosophy texts, you're just like, go, 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 go. I got to memorize all these lines. I got to understand how this point connects to this point. But when you read things that you enjoy and have a discipline of reading the things that nurture you and nourish you and grow you, um, it teaches you to slow down and it teaches you to, um, as the Benedictines would say, be converted in a way. Um, the, the Benedictine months take a vow of conversion and the whole idea is that we want to be transformed and we want to be changed and slow reading, reading, uh, people that are genuine lovers of the Lord and people who have searched for him, um, reading those people and allowing yourself to be changed and grown through their experiences in life is just genuinely just, um, just really, really nurturing. And sometimes you might find a I remember when Christian uh, recommended Tortured for Christ to me, for me, and that was like one of the books that was the most helpful in the very difficult mm -hmm. season I was in. And I was just like, how did this guy who endured 14 years of torture in the gulag, okay, mm -hmm. that's special kind of torture. Yeah. Um, how did this guy emerge from this with so much joy and so much love for the Lord? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so that's yeah. that's that's what I think about. Yeah. I think about reading. Yeah. I think, I think too, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, there's this idea of like the theological imagination. So like, you know, we become what we love. We become mm. the, the things that we fix our eyes upon, like the story that we find ourselves in or what we decide to relate to, what we decide to feed our mind with. That's, that's what we become. We become the kind of people like that we you know, whatever we're taking in. So if we're watching a lot of, you know, if we're watching the Game of Thrones, you know, okay, maybe I'm not going to be some like dragon training, like, you know, mass murderer. But 
Is that a thing in Game of Thrones, right? Isn't there I mean, somebody that's good like guess. that? I think that's yeah. a pretty good guess. I don't think they need to be trained. <laughs> okay. I, don't, okay. I mean, I don't, I don't know very much. <laughs> but So anyway, but if you follow that stuff, if you're like fascinated by the violence or the, the war, or the conflict or the backbiting, then you're going to find yourself becoming mm-hmm. a backbiting, you know, contentious person. You know, the things that you value are the things that you become. And... Um, you know, so when we when we read, when we spend our time reading and and looking at you know deep truths or beautiful pictures, mm. you know Jesus said uh, Paul writes in Philippians four. He says, "Whatever is noble, whatever is good, whatever is kind, whatever is honorable, like these things. Think about these things, and we're going to be shaped by those things." So, you know, one of the books that I'm not talking about today, you know, <laughs> um, "Cry the Beloved Country" by Alan Patton. It just has all this beautiful imagery of, you know, what is justice, what is forgiveness, um, what does it mean um, to be a righteous man, what does it mean to be a righteous father, um, and uh, a, a participant of society, like how do our decisions affect, affect others, and there's just all these things in there. But in reading this book, like, and by choosing to cherish the things that this author like has put out there, that's very Christ-centered. Um, book like we're choosing to say I value this I I choose peace over discord you know I choose um, love over hate and um, and by just continuing to read these things um, you know we we grow our mind we grow our heart um, to be more more like mm-hmm. Jesus I think there's a like a humility that reading can teach us Mm-hmm. Um, right. If we're just going about our lives and we're like, well, my personal experience in the Bible are all I need to understand what Jesus is like. Um, I think there's kind of an arrogance in that statement of, wow, I have nothing to learn from these people who have very different walks of life or um, are from different times in history and what they have to offer in talking about um, what Jesus means to them in their time and in the way that they relate to him. Um, and there's so much that we can learn from picking up these books or poems or whatever it is from people who are very different from us um, and learning from the reflections that they've had based on their own experiences, um, whether that's fiction or nonfiction, right? Like the stories that we read can really captivate us and, and help us to grow in our understanding of, of how the gospel um, affects people and how it affects our culture and all of those things are really important. And we can't really get that without reading, I think. Mm-hmm. We can talk to people, but those are still going to be the people around us who are going to share certain things in common with us. Mm-hmm. Something that comes to mind about what Christian was saying about, like, we kind of become what we look at, so to speak, what we spend time with. It's like, it's actually something that, <clears throat> to quote a book that a lot of people like, uh, or reference a book that a lot of people like, J.R.R. Tolkien in his book, The Fellowship of the Ring, he describes how Saruman becomes seduced by the ring. Mm-hmm. And Gandalf says it's like it's because he spent so much time like looking at it and investigating it, mm-hmm. and he became eventually consumed by the power of it, mm-hmm. pun, pun, potential of it. And it's very, I think I'm just echoing what Christian already said, is this sense of like what you spend time with claims you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like what do you want to be, it is a question of like, what do I want to become? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and like, it's um, reading reading people who have loved the Lord, have walked with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I would call it foolish to not want the wisdom of those people that have walked before us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of going with that, with what you said, Cassie, just that arrogance, that mm-hmm. idea of like, well, I can do this just by reading the Bible myself and like how you guys are talking about like, oh, humbling ourselves and going to people that have lived life before. Um, you know, we live in a very um, future-oriented society. You know, mm-hmm. innovation, what's new is important. Yeah. I was in a theology class one time. It was a, and, um, and someday I hope to get, like, my doctorate in theology. Like, I, I hope to get a PhD in theology. Um, but I was in my master's, in one of my master's classes for theology, and we're talking about getting your doctorate. And um, the professor said, well, to get your doctorate in theology, you need to write something that no one else has ever written before. <laughs> you need to, you need to propose an idea that no one else has. And I'm like, whoa, okay, well, okay, well, great. And he said, and the professor said, well, it's not a great way of doing theology <laughs> because if you're coming up with new theology, it means that you're like 
making something, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and the truth is, is like we we have such a focus on creating new things and innovation. But honestly, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to um, be a follower of Jesus? It means that we are remembering our ancient faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It means that we're we're not actually innovating. We're not making. I mean, there's some degree of creativity. Every every generation has mm-hmm. to make things new, like, and make things, you know, retell our stories in a way that makes sense to our culture, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to like say there's no room for innovation or creativity, but, but the most important thing is actually for us to remember Mm -hmm. and for us to be faithful with Mm -hmm. the past. And that's what reading does is it can reconnect us, you know, with people from thousands of years Mm -hmm. ago, like St. Augustine or, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, when we read Jesus, when we read the Bible, that's what we're doing. We're getting re- reconnected with um, the memories of the past. And and um, and so, um, yeah, it's just so important for us not to um, just discard the past, but for us to, like, really sit and learn and remember from the wisdom of people who have been transformed by God's spirit, God's mm-hmm. word, um, and, and see how that plays out in our time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not a very reflective culture i think some people are individually reflective but our culture doesn't value sitting and thinking about something or reflecting on ideas of Mm -hmm. people who came before us and Mm -hmm. that's something that we really have to cultivate and we're not just going to get it from watching netflix we Mm -hmm. we kind of have to spend the time to like actually engage with other ideas and think about them and then apply them to our culture Mm -hmm. now in our context Mm -hmm. now yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of another book, which also <laughs> I'm not talking about. So many books. Have you ever heard of The Brave New World? Oh, I love right? that book. By Adult, Adolphus, Adult, Adults? Aldous. Aldous, whatever. Huxley. Huxley. Yeah, Mr. Yes. Huxley. Let's say there, Mr. Huxley. Um, <laughs> so in this book, um, he, you know, envisions a dystopian future. Um, and basically, the dystopian future is a world where nobody does anything hard. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, there's all these, I mean, it was in the early 1900s. So the idea of screens and stuff was just coming around. But like he talks about people being just like enraptured by movies, um, you know, way ahead of his time. People being like, mm-hmm. like drugs, like they, had a, they have a drug in that time that has no ill effects on your physical body. Um, but people take their drugs all the time. So they don't have to think, you know, mm-hmm. like they don't have to be reflective. And I find actually like so much of our screen time is about diversion. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as you pick up a book, you have to reflect. And a lot of these books, some of the books that we're going to talk about, they're not books that are easy to read, mm-hmm. but they're books that are good to read. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's an important thing is like when we we and we also when we read and we engage in these things and we we do something hard and we we read ideas that are foreign to us or we try to understand stuff that doesn't come naturally or mm-hmm. we read vocabulary that's not easily understandable we are becoming more adult we're becoming more mature we're broadening um, our horizons from just what we know um, but our society is so geared to spoon feeding us ideas and saying don't think for yourself Mm-hmm. I'll think for you. Like, it's almost like somebody, um, you know, baby food, you know, it's like pre whatever. It's pre like, I don't know. There's, or like, I think about like a baby food from birds, like the birds, like the moms eat the food first. Right. And then <laughs> and they regurgitate regurgit it up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how I think That's of great. like um, movies. Hmm. That's how I think about like um a lot Netflix of Netflix culture. A lot of yeah, about a lot of our consumption culture. Yeah, mm-hmm. Netflix. The idea of like, um, oh yeah, it's super fun. Like I'll just like download this in my mind. You know, it's that's what we're getting. We're getting regurgitated mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not dealing with the the straight dope. Yeah. you know what I mean. Like we're yeah. we're we're just. Which isn't to say those things are evil. It just can't be all that we have. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a bad diet. It's a bad if it, if that's all your diet is, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. it's a bad diet. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's not necessarily all bad. Yeah. Okay, with that, let's talk about some books. I'm so excited, you guys. This is great. All right. Okay, let's hear about some books. Christian. The the Libros. um, Do you want to start us off? What is the first book that you want to recommend? All right. I'm going to preface this by saying these aren't necessarily my favorite books. Okay. Okay. Noted. And I didn't pick any fiction books. Okay. I threw out that Alan Patton one. (laughs) 
Cry the Bull of the Country. That's a great one. But I decided two that have impacted me. And um, But the first one I want to go with is one that I actually quoted uh, a couple weeks in a sermon. It was It's uh, called Joyful Exiles. So yeah, Joyful Exiles by Dr. James Houston. And um, basically, it's a series of essays that Dr. Houston wrote. Um, it's like, I think something like six to eight different essays. Um, and it has to do with certain challenges that he observes um, in our culture in the last um, 50, 60 years um, and where our culture is going and what it is going to mean for us to be Christians engaging in our culture today. And he, he, he basically finds um, a few key um, places that our culture has like, you know, went astray or is conflicting um, with Christian values and that we're going to have to like stand apart and be different from the world. Mm-hmm. That's where that idea of joyful exiles comes from. Mm-hmm. The idea that we're going to have to have joy, but we're also going to have to be very different. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so for me, one of the main ideas from this was I, I at the time I was in college um, or I was just out of college and I was considering being a missionary to Siberia. Yeah, I was really thinking I'm going to yeah. go to Siberia to be a missionary. Um, I just love the cold. Do you know in, in Siberia, like one of the favorite treats for people to get is ice cream in the middle of winter? What? Yeah, no, it's like I mean, you I go around, that, you but... go around with your ice cream cone, <laughs> and the thing is, why they like it is because like you just walk around, it never melts. <laughs> Oh like you just walk around. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's like you yeah. just have your ice cream and wow. there's no hurry, you know, just wow. like, oh, I'll take a little ice cream. And... Oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> that's kind of neither here nor there. But I was thinking about being this missionary to Siberia, mm-hmm. not for the ice cream, but like I was thinking about doing that. But really in my mind, I, for me personally, like we always talk about foreign missions, like mm-hmm. foreign missions is really good. But as I was processing feeling called to ministry. I, I knew I was called to ministry and I'm like, I'm going to go to Siberia and be hardcore. And the next sentence in my mind, I'm going to go to Siberia and be hardcore. And I would say, I'm going to save Russia. Oh, that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was this, this, th- that idea of like, I'm going to do something awesome. Like I'm going to, I'm going to change this world. I'm going to do these things. And in reading this book, um, and, and there was a few other things going on at the time, but the Lord brought this book, Joyful, Joyful Exiles, to me at a really key part. And um, just right at the beginning of this book, it talks about um, the difference between Jesus and Hercules and how Hercules is this hero that accomplishes great things and how like um, and we often in our, in our current culture, we often talk about Jesus as the ultimate hero. Mm-hmm. Um but Dr. Houston just points out, you know, the hero is the one who conquers triumphs. He he submits others and there's no task that he won't achieve and he'll never lose, you know, and everyone else is going to look to him as strong and he won't be served by anybody or he won't serve anybody. He's, he's not going to take second place to anybody. And he says, you know, Jesus is ultimately not a hero. Jesus died at the time where Hercules would probably have mm-hmm. taken out his sword and killed all those priests, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus chose to suffer at their hands. And um, ultimately the desire to be heroes, the desire to make a name for oneself mm-hmm. and to be, try to find a way to be significant. And, um, but Jesus chose actually to almost die an obscure death you know, if it weren't for his followers, would we ever, and, and the spirit of God, would we ever even heard of Jesus? He just, mm-hmm. he died on a, on a mountain, a few thousand, you know, many thousands of miles away on a hill on a, on a Friday it was not uncommon to like, you know, there was some parts that were different than other executions, but in some ways it was very similar. And, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Houston says he just was willing and he didn't even die for something he did. He, he just died for us. And it, it really spoke to me about what was I focusing on and a humbling of heart and saying, you know, if we're going to be Christ, Christians, we've got to fight this desire to achieve or um, be great in a sense. Mm-hmm. Not not that we don't want to be 
excellent or do good things, but the, the making our name for ourselves, um, wanting Jesus to not be able to forget us. Like he already doesn't forget us. You know, whose name are we trying to build, ours or, or Christ? And so that was that was where this book really was really powerful for me. And there's a lot of other great things in this book, but mm-hmm. one of the main thoughts. That sounds good. Oh, I'm so excited. That's book one, you guys. We got five more. All right. This is great. Nathan, you haven't talked for a bit. Do you want to go next? Yeah, I'd love to go next. Um, the first book uh, I wanted to recommend is one that I, I recommend actually really often, and I, I really don't feel... Um, that it can be, it, uh, I don't feel that it can't be recommended enough, recommended enough. Um, and it's a book called uh, Practice, Practice of the Presence of God by uh, Brother Lawrence. It's a really, really, it's just a really great book. It's very short. It's very easy to read. Um, and it's probably, I read it for the first time when I was 27. And it's probably the most influential book I've ever read on prayer. And it actually is one of the guiding uh, guiding books of our prayer and devotion material, I think, is is um, is this book. It's written by a French monk in, I believe, the 1600s named Brother Lawrence. But in, at the same time, it's not written by him. Um, basically, he passed away and everybody was like, this guy was so great. We need to like write a book we need to like get everything that he ever wrote and put it together. And they, um, people that knew him wrote conversations that they had down mm-hmm. with him and they just stuck him in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very short book. It's like 60 pages long, maybe 80. Mm-hmm. It's not very long at all. And it's just these letters and, and things like that. And he talks about his, um, his way of living and his encouragement to others about how to pray to God. And Brother Lawrence, one of the things I love about Brother Lawrence is that he's no one significant. He's not, um, so, you know, James Houston, who, who's great. I've, I think both Christian and I, and maybe Cassie have met, no, oh, dang it. That's sad. Uh, have met James Houston and he's this very accomplished individual and like what we would worldly call accomplished individual. But Brother Lawrence is this guy who uh, was a monk, and he mended sandals and cleaned pots, and that was what he did. But he had this very, very simple conviction that God was always with him, and it would be terribly rude if he didn't talk to him. And so he he committed to always talking to the Lord. And it developed into a very, very profound relationship that he had. And you read this book and you just see through the pages, this guy who's like very much like connected and very much, I, I talk to him. Mm-hmm. And on some level you even hear like he talks back. He doesn't ever have like words or he doesn't, um, there's no writings that are, um, um, there's no writings that, uh, that he includes of like audible voices that he heard or prophecies that he made there's just this deep loving relationship between the two of them and when you read it there's this i think when i was a young person i always thought of prayer as like i have to do prayer i have to do prayer and he's more and he has more the attitude of like i don't have to do prayer i i love the person that i'm talking to and he just has this very gentle very kind demeanor And he, like, at the same time of him, like, talking about, like, his way of living and his prayer life and stuff, he's constantly kind of punching you in the face. But he does it (laughs) in such a very nice way. And one of the things that he says, actually, that was just so phenomenal. I've actually had friends who who have read this book, and they are just so angry. Because they're just like, I want that kind of relationship with the Lord, but I don't have it. Mm -hmm. Um, and Brother Lawrence is like, you can totally have that. He's like, you can totally have it. He's always there. You can just always talk to him. Um, and one of the things that was, I, one thing that I would reference in the book that was really striking to me, I still think about this, is like Brother Lawrence talks about like he would wash pots, be washing pots and things like that. Um, and he admits that he didn't really enjoy doing the tasks that he had to do. But um, he would wash pots and stuff like that, and he'd be praying while he's doing it. 
which he he even explores like what does prayer look like for him and it's not always words Mm -hmm. he actually eventually gets to the point where he's like sometimes it's just being aware that he's there um and so i think that really opened up my mind to like what is prayer actually Mm -hmm. like thinking about it in that way but anyway but anyway he would wash pots and he'd be praying and then he'd notice oh i'm not praying anymore and he did this crazy like he did something that's deep i find deeply profound um instead of being like oh no and like making penance and being really upset he'd be like i'm sorry lord and then he would just go back to praying and he was like i'm not gonna get i'm not gonna feel a sense of guilt i'm not gonna entertain that i'm just gonna come back to him Mm -hmm. that's all i need to do his sense of his idea of repentance was like not one of like i need to like beat myself or guilt myself or shame myself the lord doesn't have those things for me i just need to come back to him Mm -hmm. and like it's such a powerful notion in our prayer life it's like oh i got to say the right things it's like well no what if the lord is just happy that you're with him and present with him Mm -hmm. and starting in a premise starting there uh, in our prayer life of just being like the lord is pleased that I'm just talking to him. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, deeply influential. Uh, I'm going to make this commitment. If anybody this year, over the next month, this is not an all-time statement, <laughs> even though I will make this statement. If any of you wants to read this book and approaches me and is like, hey, Nathan, I want to read this book, I will buy you a copy of the book. Hey, Nathan. Whoa. Does that include me? Yes, that includes hey. you. It's like $4. That's it's not, <laughs> it's not the biggest. <laughs> it's not the biggest commitment. Um, so yeah, it's just... It is, it's, it's just a good book. Awesome. It's a really good book. You know, I've, I've read that book. Um, mm-hmm. I have, and I haven't read that book because <laughs> I think one disclaimer to make about that book is mm-hmm. it is really short. It's like mm-hmm. maybe 60 to 80 pages somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read it in like, you know, three hours mm-hmm. on one sitting, like one mm-hmm. day, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that really isn't the way to read that Mm-mm. book. You really should take a, a, a month or something mm-hmm. to slowly read it, not to yeah, I be mean, efficient. Yeah. I, I actually usually tell people, it's like, if you read it in a day or a week, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, it kind of goes back to this notion of like converting oneself. It's like, um, I think when I read it, I was like, I really do want to know the Lord is there. And if I really do want that, then I need to listen to the person, people that have his presence, that know his presence is there. Mm-hmm. And so I took my time with it the first time I read it. And I'm like slowly letting him like teach me what it is yeah. and like allowing him myself to rethink how I do things, how I think about God and things like that. And it was just a, yeah, it's mm-hmm. an incredibly influential book in my life. Okay. It's one of the few books I've read more than once too. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, the Bible is, you know, it doesn't count, but... <laughs> the Bible's a library. <laughs> the Bible, It's yeah. special. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing. Okay. Um, my first book <laughs> would be Anonymous um, by Alicia Britchell. So, female author. I hope I pronounced her name right. Um, but I read this a couple of years ago after a recommendation uh, by another campus pastor. And it was so good. And so now I'm sharing it with all of you. Um, She has this really poetic way of writing, which I won't be able to capture in explaining the book, but um, I just really appreciate that. Like, she is a very reflective person herself, um, and I've read a couple of her other books, and they're equally good, so I would endorse her as an author. Um, And she's exploring this idea of how Jesus was called into ministry at 30 years old, and we don't know a whole lot about his life before that point. Um, And so she's exploring this idea of you know, why Why did God wait 30 years for the Messiah to be doing his Messiah things? Um, rather than, you know, like, if we were like, hell, the Messiah is, like, here, we would, you know, want to study him. We'd be like, you're an alien from outer space. What can we learn about you in all this time? And God's like, no, I'm just going to let him be a carpenter and be with his family and do these other things. Um, and that's not to say that nothing remarkable happened in that time. We just don't have a record of it. And so she's exploring that idea um, through the lens of Jesus's temptations right after he's baptized um, and looking at these temptations of what she calls applause uh, or appetite is the first one, appetite, applause, and authority, and then comparing that to our experience too. So 
now, today, what does it mean for us when God calls us into seasons of waiting or seasons where it seems like not that much is happening? Um, how does our faith actually grow in those times? And so, and so like looking through the lens of the temptations and, um, and saying, okay, Jesus was able to resist this because in his period of waiting, in the time that we don't really have a record of, um, these are things that he learned about his identity and about waiting on the Lord. Um, and these were really crucial things that he had to deal with before he could effectively do ministry. Um, so it's a great book, especially if you're interested in like ministry leadership in any way, because these are a lot of the things that we deal with on a regular basis. Um, so I'd love to read just like a short page, a little less than a page um, from the end of the book where she talks a little bit about that. Um, and she writes, though unapplauded, our anonymous seasons are not even remotely unproductive. In them, God cultivates strengths that stand the test of time. The anchor of God's word, self-control, an accurate portrait of God, an unshakable identity, trust in God's timing, a disciplined imagination, an eternal perspective, submission-based authority. St such strengths are not given, they are grown. They are the fruit of active participation, not passive observation. Anonymous seasons can be the most spiritually fruitful spaces of our lives, if we respect their potential and cooperate with God in their development, how can we welcome our hidden gears and fully realize their potential? And so it's it's this reflection on, you know, God doesn't call us to be in the spotlight in every season. Um, and there are going to be times in our lives when, when God is more quiet. And so what does it look like for us to be faithful in those times and to grow and to appreciate those seasons for what they are? So it helped me a lot. I was like, oh, you know, I'm a new Christian. I'm figuring out what this whole thing is about. But it doesn't mean I have to be like pushing at every moment. Sometimes there are going to be times when God calls us into these like into these deserts. Mm -hmm. And then we have to learn, OK, what does God want to teach me in the desert? So, I think that's really mm -hmm. helpful for everyone. That's mm -hmm. good. Yeah. I want to read that book now. It's so good. I've it's so her, good. I've heard her speak. I think it's, really? I think it's Choli. Choli? Is okay. Her last name, mm -hmm. Okay. Her last name Choli. And she's mm -hmm. she's very brilliant and mm -hmm. I know lots of people that just love her as an author. Yeah. She's I was great. reading sorry. Go no, ahead. that's it. I was reading the uh, subtext oh, yeah. on the title and Jesus's it, hidden years and yours. Yeah, I saw Jesus's hippin years <laughs> because because <laughs> it's upside down. Because it's upside down. That's great. The D's look like I don't D's. think that's what she would say, but... <laughs> Hippin. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> no, it's really good. I'd recommend it to everybody. And it's not hard to read either. So it's good. Alrighty, who wants to go next? We got three more books. All right, I'll go. Yeah. I'll go. Oh. So, um, hey, a couple, a couple of things I just remembered. Like, one disclaimer is almost every book that I've recommended that to other people in my past have not been like loved. So I'm just throwing <laughs> it out there. You might not love these books. And okay. you know, one thing that Brady, my, my mentor, Brady Bobbink, he said to me was, you know, whenever you read a book, you know, it's just like eating a chicken that you want to eat the meat and then spit out the bones. Oh. There's this sense that, like, you know, every one of these books is going to have stuff in it that's not, like, mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. You know, so so just because we're, like, recommending all of, you know, the last book I told you, like, I can't, I'm not, like, everything Dr. James Houston says is, like, oh, yeah, that's awesome, you know, mm -hmm. or I totally agree with all of those things. But, you know, we're recommending these books because they're they're books that really meant a lot to us. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. but we are going to have to be active readers mm -hmm. and, like, think about, like, oh, is that – do I think that that that's good, or what are the things I can appreciate? You know, so there's there's different levels of that. So, um, so that's one little disclaimer there. Um, but then another another thing that I just want to say about Dr. James Houston, I didn't really tell anybody who he was or anything, but he was a a, geol a geographer. Mm -hmm. oh. Like he did geography. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, he he yeah. taught geography at Oxford mm -hmm. at the same time that C.S. Lewis was a teacher there. Mm -hmm. And so he knew C.S. Lewis, and you know there was um, there was a pretty strong group of Christian um, professors at Oxford, mm -hmm. and um, sometime in the '60s or '70s, um, you know, even though he was this geographer, um, he just felt like the Lord. He was a strong Christian. He just felt like the Lord was calling him to 
leave like the pinnacle of academia, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, being the professor at Oxford isn't like yeah. no small thing, you know? And he's like, I'm going to start, I'm going to go and start a seminary in um, British Columbia. Hmm. So Canada. he moved to British Columbia, Canada, Vancouver, hmm. BC. And um, he started this seminary there. And the idea of the seminary actually wasn't to be like a very prestigious seminary. The idea was just to train, just to, it's called the People's Seminary. So it's called Regent College People's Seminary. And the idea is that anyone could come. It wasn't just for like academics. It was like Mm -hmm. any Christian, anybody could come and study, you know, and it wasn't supposed to be expensive. It was just supposed to be very enriching for Mm -hmm. everyday Christians. And now it is the largest academic seminary in North America. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's from where he started. And so, um, so, and, and our, and Brady Bobbing, that mentor I told you about, built a very strong relationship with Dr. Mm-hmm. James Houston. So that's why me and Nathan yeah. had a chance to meet him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's a genuinely, like you, his book is Joyful Exiles. And I would say that guy is a very, like, he has a very joyful presence about him. He's mm-hmm. just a very pleasant, very kind individual. He's really quite epic too. He's like 97 and he's still like writing books yeah. and like traveling the world and doing, yeah. I'm like, he's still like when I met him four years ago, five years ago, I think he was still walking Yeah. He's, and like, not like hobble walk, like very vibrant, very Faster like, than Christian Anderson. Yeah. What? Faster than Christian Anderson. No, it yeah. doesn't take much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, oh, but good. my second book is... Mm. Um, going to be a little bit of a different take here. Okay. So it's an autobiography. It's like a spiritual memoir. It says a memoir of African-American faith. Ooh. It's called um, The Substance of Things Hoped For by Samuel DeWitt Proctor. Now, this is so crazy. You know how I got this book? How did you get this I book? I was walking in the Bellingham. That's where I'm from, Bellingham, mm-hmm. Washington. I was walking in the Bellingham Public Library, and this book was on the free shelf. Oh, man. So I'm like, well, this looks really interesting. Yeah. And the the three months that I read this book, I felt like I was just having this spiritual experience. So I'm recommending this book to everybody. But to be honest, this book might have just been for me. And it just like <laughs> might have hit me like perfect. Like maybe that's the only reason this guy wrote this book mm-hmm. was so I could be blessed because <laughs> of how awesome it was. Um, but Samuel mm-hmm. DeWitt Proctor was... Um, an African American professor um, in you know the 50s and late 40s. So that means that he. Um, so there was a group of professors, like a whole age of African American professors, that really mobilized young students. So if you think about like all the pastors and stuff, like Dr. Martin Luther King, like they were all pastors serving, but they all had to go to seminary somewhere. Well, Dr. Um, Proctor was like part of that generation that raised up the civil rights activists. So he, you know, they, they, there's this network of doctorate, you know, seminarians that, that really helped to mobilize a generation. And he'll, you know, in this book, he talks about when he met Martin Luther King and gave him advice on what to study. And he talks about like Martin Luther King Jr., you know, man, he was a good preacher. But there were a lot of good preachers out there, you know, like what set him apart? And he's like Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks set him apart, you know, so it's he just has a really interesting perspective as you read um, what it was like. And, and the things that really influenced me about about this book, and it has to really do with the title, The Substance of Things Hoped For, um, was, you know, Dr. Proctor was raised um you know, in the South, and um, he was taught his whole life, like African Americans are less than mm-hmm. um, white people. And, um, and they, it wasn't just like it was religious languages used that, but also like scientific language. He, he talks a lot in this book about how academia would, was very um, much part of the perpetuation of that lie, you know, and he talks at length about how the theory of evolution was used. And this isn't me saying anything bad about science or anything, but that at the time when he was there, people were espousing evolution and saying evolution is evidence of African-Americans as being less, mm-hmm. less valuable, less developed than white, white people. And um, he says, um, I don't, you know, he wasn't a scientist. Um, but one part of his book, he says, you know, I don't care what the science says. 
when I read the Bible, God says that I was made in his image. And Mm -hmm. so any excuse that a man, you know, maintains or tries to say that they're better than me, I know the revelation of God Mm -hmm. and I'm going to stand on God's principle. And that's just such a statement of faith. Like in the midst of a culture that says, you know, you're less than somebody else. And he just has such a posture of faith and pressing into God and saying, um, I know who God made me to be, and I'm not going to accept less. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to, I'm going to own that I'm his child. And, um, and then he not only believed that for himself, but he just tells story after story of him running into people and not letting them either like see themselves as less than what God made. There's one story. I mean, there's so many stories like this, but one story of um, he's just driving his car and he sees another African-American guy like walking by the side of the street and he pulls over. He's like, hey, we're out in the middle of the field here. Like, where are you going? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I got got to go up there a couple miles. And he's like, well, hey, I'll give you a ride. And on the car ride, he's like, what are you doing with your life? You know, and he talks this guy from like, this guy was thinking about being a mechanic, you know, just kind of doing what his dad did. But he goes to find out this guy like loves being a veterinarian. He ends up getting a, like, a, I think he ends up getting like a major degree in veterinarian mm-hmm. science, like because of this one car ride mm-hmm. um, where Dr. Proctor wouldn't like let this guy settle mm-hmm. for being less than what he thought he was, you know? And so mm-hmm. like, so what I found in this book was like, you know, I, I know that we're in like a very like, you know, race and um, race is a really touchy subject. Diversity is a very touchy subject. This is a great book for people if they want to understand more. Um, like if if you're a white person, like this is a great place to understand more of like um, where African-Americans come from. This book was written in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, primarily to an African-American audience. So it's, it's a real joy and was really ed- like eye-opening for me, like learning more about um, African-Americans' experience growing up in America. Um, so that's a great thing. Um, if you're an African-American or a minority, it's also could be, you could find a very friendly voice, you know, a, a voice that could be very empowering and helpful. Um, but I think more than anything, the, what I got from it was just that we have to have this radical faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't compromise with what our culture says or with what society says or what our family says or where, where, where others might want to limit like where we are, but that God calls us to believe beyond um, what we can see mm. and what we've been conditioned to think. And mm-hmm. so that was just really powerful for me. And so I'd really, yeah, right. I mean, there's a lot of political stuff in this book from the 90s. <laughs> so, you know, if you really have a strong opinion about, you know, Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan politics. and all that, you know, the there's, 90s. you know, George H.W. <laughs> Bush. But, you know, there will be parts that, like, will resonate with times of today. And mm-hmm. and um, you may or may not agree with everything he says politically about what should happen. Um, but I think it is a, a good place to, like, um, just engage and, and learn more, learn mm-hmm. a different perspective. Yeah. I think that puts in perspective too, like you were saying, oh, I'm teaching, he was teaching in the forties and fifties and that's how recent mm. all of those ideas are. <laughs> like that's yeah. less than a hundred years ago. Oh man. Um, it's just crazy yeah. how, how much has gone on even in just the last hundred years mm. in yeah. racial politics in the U S. Yeah. Well, he was crazy. telling, he was telling once he was a professor at, oh my goodness, it was a school in New Jersey. I just can't remember the name of the school right now. Rutgers. Mm-hmm. Rutgers. Um, uh, he was a professor somewhere else too, but I think he was in this meeting of like, a, he tells a story in this book where he's in a meeting with all the professors and the president of the university in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And they're saying like, they're talking about like, well, why, well, we know African-Americans aren't that good at this. And Whoa. meaning just like a sense of like, well, they, they're just naturally not that good at that. Mm. And he's sitting in this room and he's like, these are the these are the educated people in mm-hmm. the 90s yeah you know and and i think he might have even wrote this book partially in response to another book in the 90s that was supposed it was like fake science but it was it was touted as real science that that tried to explain why african americans are less than because 
of different measurements of their brains or different things. Like they tried to tote that off as science. And mm-hmm. so these ideas aren't old. Like, like they're not gone. They're not gone. They're very yeah. present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this book was really about confronting and and just opening up people's eyes to those things. So that's that's so true, Cassie. And so, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oof, it's a lot. So, yeah. Nathan, do you have your second book? Yes, I do. Um. So for my second book, I I kind of intentionally chose to choose two books um, of varying difficulties. Um, My first book, Brother Lawrence, I think is very attainable. It's challenging. Don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. It's spiritually very challenging. Um, I think a lot of people would find Brother Lawrence's book to conflict with a systematic way of thinking. but he so he's challenging but he's incredibly easy to read he's not there's no complex theology there's nothing um yeah there's just there's nothing there's no complex language it's just very very much a guy who is minimally educated for his time and washes pots Mm -hmm. for a living and so um and never achieves like standing he doesn't become the abbot of his monastery or anything like that he's just he pretty much is just the pot washer for a mm-hmm. long time anyway he does a few other tasks but for my second book i wanted to choose something that was going to be a little bit more challenging um and by an author who in general is quite challenging and um the book is uh, called orthodoxy by gk chesterton um christian's nodding his head he's like yeah <laughs> i haven't read it i, know. I have read the the heretics, the, oh, heretics. the, the book yeah. before, but yeah, yeah. He Chesterton wrote another book called Heretics, which he wrote before Orthodoxy, which I have not read actually. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. It's a competition now. Okay, uh, <laughs> leave it With to Christian. Christian. Everything's a competition. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, Orthodoxy is. I would describe it as um, Chesterton's like expression of how he kind of came to understand come to faith essentially in the culture that he was in Mm. in some ways it's not autobiographical it's more just like this is what i think about our culture and this is what i think about god and and things and he wasn't always a christian i think he became a christian in his 30s or 40s actually so um and he was actually a contemporary of c.s lewis he was actually very very influential in c.s lewis's conversion um i believe c.s lewis uh became a christian in part because of chesterton's writings and the reason was was that c.s lewis was like i don't agree with their like chesterton's conclusions but the way he thinks makes more the most sense. Mm-hmm. There was like a method of how Chesterton thought that he was like, this is how one should think kind of thing. Um, and ultimately, when you agree with the way a person thinks, you'll eventually come to their conclusions. And C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis did um, eventually. And C.S. Lewis became a Christian, I think, when he was 27. Um, but Chesterton wrote Orthodoxy, um, as kind of an expression of like his mindset and his his views on his present culture, and he really speaks into what's going on. Some stuff that's actually very relevant to today. Um, in orthodoxy, he talks a great deal about skepticism, a great deal about skepticism and the pitfalls of skepticism. Um, what I mean by skepticism uh, is, or what he means by skepticism, is a sort of um way of looking at everything as something to be like challenged hmm. and something to be undermined and like uprooted um and he actually i uh, it's been a little while since i've read this but like he i think goes as far as to say that that's like unsustainable essentially because hmm. you have to be a skeptic of your own skepticism hmm. but skeptics don't do that and he would actually go as far as skepticism is ultimately irrational because of that it's hypocritical he would even go as far as to say i i think and he actually says that it's interesting he makes a comparison i don't know if i agree with this but it was an interesting thought he was actually like people say that crazy essentially crazy people are like irrational he's like actually they're terribly rational 
they can put one idea next to the other and build a very, very concise argument as to why they think what they think. They're very rational beings. Skeptics are not rational, though. Mm. Uh, and essentially, he challenges, he's like, you, because you say everything needs to be challenged. Everything, your attitude is one of, you need to challenge everything. And he's, but you're not willing to be challenged yourself really deeply. And um, it really speaks into a, a culture that, and he wrote this in the 1930s or 40s. So it's a long time ago. It's kind of prophetic. Or maybe before that even. Well, maybe, eh, I don't, I don't think it was before the 30s. Maybe, maybe it was. Um, but he, uh, but it's kind of prophetic because I was reading this book. I was like, oh my gosh, this is what we're, we're dealing with this 10 times 10. Mm -hmm. And when we look at like, uh, political discourse and theological discourse, a lot of the time discourse within the church, it's like my goal, our, our posture is one of like, I need to like come up to you and tear everything you believe down. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, in some ways, like, rip the person apart. Not like their idea, but rip the person apart. But when someone does the same thing to you, you like, or you call them irrational, you call them many different things. It's mean. Like, mean, <laughs> unkind. Yeah. It's like, well, you yeah. were doing the exact same thing. And it's like, oh, maybe I need to be a little bit more thoughtful in how I engage things. And he actually, he says some stuff that's just so pointed um, and he's very, the thing, the, why would I call this guy difficult? Okay. I need to clarify this because I think he's a really, really profound writer. Um, he, you actually might be familiar with some of his work. If you've ever watched the father Brown BBC series, it's actually based on a book series that he wrote called father Brown. Um, uh, the reason Chesterton, I would call very difficult is because he's, 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 he's really smart. Um, but, um, he does, he, how do I express this? He is a very gifted writer and he vacillates. He moves between being extremely like thoughtful and logical in constructing an argument. But then he also appeals to like the human condition. Hmm. And so, and I'm going to read a quote in a second of like kind of that appeal to human condition. And he moves and you're like, wow, that logical progression makes a lot of sense. And then he says something that you're just like, dang, that hits. Hmm. Like that, it's not just your reasoning that it tackles. It's like, man, yeah, I think that's true. That's just true of humanity and people. Um, the other reason is, I, I remember I was talking to some friends actually about orthodoxy uh, about uh, over the Christmas break. And, uh, and uh, I was like, oh, have you read Orthodoxy by Chesterton? And they're like, no, no, no. I was like, oh, it's really good. It's, it's, he's got a lot of words though. Like I actually have to look up words. I told them mm -hmm. I actually have to look up words often yeah. when I read Chesterton, which I love. <laughs> I like learning new words, yeah. but like my friends literally looked at me. He's like, Nathan, if you're looking up words, there's no chance we're ever going to like, <laughs> and so he, he really has this very diverse vocabulary, but it presents a lot of color yeah. to his writing. And, uh, it's just he he really just sometimes says things and you're just like that is just beautiful yeah. and so he's not like the philosopher who's trapped in his analysis of life he's also like well who am i what is man mm -hmm. and what does that mean yeah. and then he appeals to that part of us and so he's, i he's wanted like, to read he's like beautifully disorienting hmm. i kind of that's how mm. I, I when i read when i've read some chesterton it's mm -hmm. like where are we go okay mm -hmm. i see where we're going what you know it's like he, he really throws you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like so engaging to read, mm -hmm. but then it's like a little bit disorienting, mm -hmm. which in, in a good way, I think. Mm -hmm. I think and it, it's challenging because you're kind of trying to navigate that disorientation, I would say. The other reason I would say it's challenging is, uh, particularly orthodoxy, is that there's um, he makes references to his immediate context within his decade. Mm -hmm. um, and so you kind of have to like piece some things together yourself. Um, so like the, the first example I think of is like, he references this thing called Hanover. And I remember Googling it. I was like, what is Hanover mm -hmm. in Chesterton's thing? And there's nothing there. And I was like, and I kept reading it, kept reading it, kept reading it. And I was like, I think he's talking about an insane asylum, mm -hmm. but I had to do that work for myself. Mm -hmm. If you guys have another possible notion, 
I'm all ears, but that's what I came up with. Gotcha. But one of my, so uh, I want to read you guys a quote. Um, at this point in the book, he's kind of talking about joy, and he's talking about like, he's talking about joy. I'm just going to leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of like, this is very, very often quoted. I've quoted this several times to people, and it's just beautiful. Um, and he says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are, the mo- are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Hmm. Dang. Beautiful. Yeah. And he does that a lot. Um, and he just taps into, like, like, um, he just, like, in that quote, he's like, look at children. Look at this praiseworthy thing about children. And that's good. Mm-hmm. We, we totally acknowledge that boredom and monotony is, like, not good. And he just pulls that thing that you already know to be true and he just brings it to the forefront in such a like praiseworthy and gentle and like uplifting manner. He's also kind of biting at times, admittedly. There's people that he challenges and he's bam. <laughs> but but um it's just he's just very eloquent. He like vacillates between like creating these very, very like boop 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 structures and then he moves into this poetry and it's just like really, really good. It's great. Anyway, that's my second book. Ah, so many books. This is great. It's also relatively short. It's like maybe 120 pages. However, it takes some work. I was surprised based on what you just said about this book that it's only 120 pages. He's very concise. He was actually originally a journalist. He was was a journalist. That's Mm -hmm. what he did. He wrote. He's also very well known for responding to an op-ed piece in the newspaper. You know this one, Christian? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they uh, asked the audience the question, what's wrong with the church? And he eloquently... What's wrong with the world? No, it was what's wrong with the church. I think I, 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 I believe it is what's wrong with the world. Anyway, okay. The answer remains the same. And he answers very eloquently with one word. And he says, me. Uh, it was two words. Oh my no. gosh. It was I am. These are different. <laughs> Not different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the gauntlet has. Oh, we oh, might have to Google this. Drawn. We're gonna have to look this up, uh, and then we should record both of you saying I was right, and then Nathan can edit it no, to make one person that. right. Uh, that's way too much work. Anyway, <laughs> the point still stands. The point basically stands. I could have swore. He's very I concise. Could've, I could. Yeah, powerful. the point. He's very concise. He's very powerful, yeah. and he has a way of like. Pointing the finger and not pointing the finger at the same time. Mm-hmm. He he has a way of pointing the finger at your, getting you to point the finger at yourself. Mm-hmm. So what's wrong with the church? Me. Like, yeah. right, that's what you're saying. And right? yeah, that's and pretty like, like, whoa. Like, mm-hmm. and everybody's like, oh man, that's so true of myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm the sinner, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. More to go. <laughs> go ahead. That's okay. Um, so this one is coming from an Oregonian, so that's fun. Um, chicka chicka. Chicka chicka, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, great, Christian. That was so helpful. Oregonians, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, his name is John Mark Comer, and his book is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, and this guy was a megachurch pastor in Portland, um, and was finding that life like very overwhelming, like very busy, very much like a hustle culture type mentality um, and was just getting overwhelmed by it and was like, I'm going to step down. I'm going to do this, this thing that people don't usually do in mega churches. Um, and so he goes and he instead pastors this really tiny, like kind of like hole in the wall church um, and is sort of like that is what has caused him to reflect on on like efficiency in American culture and busyness and hustle and hurry and all of these things. Um, 
in a really helpful way, I think. I think this is something that we don't always recognize as like a pandemic, <laughs> you know, like this is yeah. this is something that's so much a part of our culture that we don't even think about it. Um, and we celebrate it often. Um, we're like, oh, yeah, um, my response to how are you doing is, oh, good, but I'm busy. Um, like, you know, people say that to me every week. <laughs> and so it's like this has become the norm for us and we're often not critical about it. And so what he does in this book is he takes kind of the first half of the book to talk about how we got here. Um, so where where he came from, um, what his mentality is, and then researching, okay, how did American culture come from this like colonial society that was reflective and um, very academically inclined, like people uh, who were, you know, regular commoners were read up on the philosophies of the day and were able to hold conversations with educated people. Um, and we came from that to where we are now, where everyone's busy all the time. And so he traces that sort of economically and politically um, and then comes to, hey, let's compare this to the gospel and points out that Jesus is not leading a hurried life. He's very purposeful in the three years of ministry um, that we see recorded in the gospels. He's not opposed to being interrupted. Um, and when he's interrupted, he takes a lot of time with people, even when others are like, hey, you know, I really need you to go heal my family member. And Jesus is like, well, I'm here with this woman and I'm I'm going to be with her and spend good quality time with her. And we'll get to that later, you know, and then he goes and shows up and and God meets them in that place. And so he's encouraging, uh, Comer's encouraging a return to a more unhurried life, um, which means ruthlessly eliminating hurry in a way that we're not used to. Um, so the second half of the book is more an exploration of that, what it means to do that, uh, an introduction to spiritual disciplines, which can help you uh, to cultivate that kind of rest in your life so that you can reflect and, and push back on this culture that we're in. Um, but I found it to be like very practical, very helpful um, in thinking about, okay, how, how does this shape my mindset, um, even in ministry, and then how can I push back on that in the way that honors Jesus? Because... I don't want to be unlike Jesus in yeah. in the hurry that I show. Um, and he, he does talk about hurry as like this antithesis of love. So I'd love to read that passage. It's right from the beginning of the book. Um, oh, book opening noises. Here <laughs> oh, we go. I love, that song. I love it. <laughs> That's good. I do. Here's a, here's a short section from that. This new speed of life isn't Christian. It's anti-Christ. Think about it. What was the highest value in Christ's kingdom economy? easy. Love. Jesus made that crystal clear. He said the greatest command in all of the Torah was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, followed only by love your neighbor as yourself. But love is painfully time-consuming. All parents know this, as do all lovers and most long-term friends. Hurry and love are incompatible. All my worst moments as a father, a husband, and a pastor, even as a human being, are when I'm in a hurry late for an appointment, behind on my unrealistic to-do list, trying to cram too much into one day. I ooze anger, tension, a critical nagging, the antitheses of love. If you don't believe me, next time you're trying to get your type B wife and three young, easily distracted children out of the house and you're running late, a subject on which I have a wealth of experience, just pay attention to how you relate to them. Does it look and feel like love? Or is it far more in the vein of agitation, anger, abiding comment, a rough glare? Hurry and love are oil and water. They simply do not mix. Hence, in the Apostle Paul's de definition of love, the first descriptor is patient. There's a reason people talk about walking with God, not running with God. It's because God is love. So that gives you a very small insight into what the book is like. Um, he has a very, you know, short to the point, kind of punchy writing style um, and keeps that up throughout. But I found it really helpful. So that's why I'm sharing it. Man, those are great books. Mm -hmm. I know. That's a great book. I know. Those are, I love everything you just said, Cassie. <laughs> I love it. They're helpful. I think I tend to like the, you know, how does this help me live more practically, more like Jesus um, types of books. And so that's mm -hmm. what I brought. It's good. Mm -hmm. that so cool. Good. Thanks, guys. We should do this again sometime. Yeah, all right. Or, you know, get different people on here maybe get next year books. and share some different books. Yeah. So that'd be fun. Um, so just in case you missed the titles and authors the first time, let's say them again, uh, and then you can write them down and you'll have them for later. Uh, so my two books were Anonymous, 
which is subtitled Jesus's Hidden Years and Yours by Alicia Britt Choley. And then my second one would be The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And my first book was Joyful Exiles by Dr. James Houston. And the second one was Samuel DeWitt Proctor, A Substance of Things Hoped For. No, the substance the of things substance. hoped for. Not nice. A. The substance of things hoped for. Uh, the books I recommended are uh, Brother Lawrence's Practice of the Presence of God and uh, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Thanks, guys. That's great. Um, these were great. So thank you guys for coming prepared to talk about them. And of course, if you're out there listening, we hope that one of these books has piqued your interest or maybe all of them and that God will speak to you through it. As always, feel free to email us with comments, questions, or topic suggestions at social at OregonStateXA.com or reach out to one of us in person. Have a great week, and remember, reading the Bible is important, but it's not the only book that can teach you about following Jesus. Thank you.